the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Pete Peterson, my dear friend, Pete Peterson is the dean of the School of Public Policy at Pepperdine. Pete, um, normally one would say happy something, but yeah. uh, you don't really want to say happy September 11th. You want to say um, it's good to talk to you on September 11th. I suppose that's right. It's good to talk to you, sir. Yes, you as well, Seth. I was so grateful that you reached out. It provides – it's actually therapy for me to t- talk this through. I was good. telling good. someone on a call earlier this afternoon that I was going to be hopping on with you to talk about it. I said, I hope I'm going to be able to hold it together. And the person said, you know, this is just one of those days you've just got to feel what needs to be felt. Yeah, you do. And let it run. I, I've had yeah. a couple callers uh, today who had uh, had trouble uh, with mm. it. And good they should. I, I, there's, a, there's a range of emotions for those of us that uh, remember it and were there and had our lives changed by it. And that's important. It's also important that we know that you have students in your school. You have students at Pepperdine who know yeah. nothing of it from firsthand, uh, right? Uh, uh, th- yeah. That 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 have only the stories we tell or, or the stories that the culture tells. And you at Pepperdine do something um, important here. Uh, unlike a lot of schools, places of higher education, you have something of the waves of flags. Do you want to tell us about that? Is that a good place to start? Yeah, no, it is. It's actually one of the one of the many evidences of uh, God's work in my life is that I was in New York on on that fateful day and now work in an institution 3,000 miles away that I think commemorates 9-11 more poignantly than than any that's my sense I mean I was looking into this this waves of flags yeah you bet I think yeah I think you're right started with a group of college Republicans and and some folks from uh, Young America's Freedom Foundation uh, with a proposal uh, soon after 9-11 uh, to say, would it be possible to put flags commemorating each one who we lost on that day? Um, and and that's where it began. And now we're, we've been doing it now for over, I think we were 16 years now. Obviously, today's the, the 19th anniversary, but I think we've been at it 15 or 16 years. Yeah. And if you drive down Pacific Coast Highway, uh, you are met as you drive by the big green front lawn of the Pepperdine campus. I know it well. 3,000 flags. 3,000 flags. Yeah. 3,000 flags. Fantastic. I'll tell you, I was worried early on. on nine, well, why don't you do your story? You, because I know nine eleven changed you. Why don't you do yours, and then I'll tell you what I was worried about on that day. Uh, you were in New York. I was in Washington. Yeah, I was uh, working at a marketing advertising firm at 38th Street and 8th Avenue, uh, commuted in from New Jersey, the suburbs where I was living, and 
got a phone call in the office uh, soon after the first plane hit from one of the other staff members. It was a fairly small firm, but he lived across the street from the towers. And he's calling in just frantically saying, I'm not coming into the office. A, a plane has just hit the World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I'm imagining a, a Cessna, you know. I'm, yeah. I'm thinking that this was some... That's what we thought when we so turned on the Today Show. That's what the Today right. Show folks were saying. That's what we thought. Right. And I said, well, that's, I'm saying to myself as I'm hearing the, the conversation with the other staff member who's, who's speaking, that, uh, but, you know, didn't really think too much of it. And then uh, he calls back. Uh, about 45 minutes or so later to say a second plane is hit and you've got to turn on on the television. Yeah. And so, sure enough, as soon as that second plane hit, all the phones were lit up and we're seeing now on the Internet uh, what's happening. And the president of this marketing firm just said, you know, um, that old last call, you, you, don't, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here, yeah. and basically said, okay, you all need to leave. And, of course, I'm, I'd come in from New Jersey. They had shut down all the trains, the bridges, the tunnels, and so forth, so I'm just kind of stuck there on Manhattan. But I had a good buddy of mine who was a, worked in the DA's office for the city of New York, and he was working out in Staten Island, and I called him up, and I said, uh, Alan, can I crash at your place because I can't – there's no place for me to go. And he had an apartment up on the Upper East Side, 89th Street, between 2nd and 3rd Avenue. And I made the walk, maybe an hour and a half it took to go from 38th and 8th up to 89th. And um, it was just an amazing – walk, right? I'm walking along and cars are coming up from downtown with sheetrock and white dust just falling off of them, you know, and people lined up at pay phones because none of the cell phones were working, trying to communicate with people, telling them it's okay. All the while you're looking downtown and you're seeing this pall of brown, black smoke that's just coming spilling into the air and so I managed to get to his apartment and turned on the news and just stared at the television for three hours and at one point I remember hearing a jet outside and just thinking to myself wow that's strange I haven't heard any planes overhead and of course I knew that things were being shut down so I looked out of his apartment window and it was a military jet that was flying around the island of Manhattan, and it struck me, he's up there to shoot things down. That's right. That's right. Because if you remember, we didn't know there were just going to be two planes. Oh, we, 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 we had all kinds of things flying around. Uh, yeah. Flying around the, the chatter. The, the chatter. Yeah. We, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. We, we, we were told there were bombs going off in Lafayette Square and that there yeah. was going to be another wave. Yeah, yeah, we didn't know what was going on. Right. So it just strikes me as I'm watching this Air Force jet flying around, I was like, how did we get in this place on this beautiful September day that yep. started off in the office, and now the military's flying around looking to shoot down a possible passenger That's plane. right. That's right. That's right. And so I left the apartment, walked out into Central Park only a few blocks away, and again, it was that perfect day that everybody 
describes, you look uptown, kids and baby strollers and parents and people walking around, and then you look downtown at the smoke and you realize that the world's changing and you're not sure how, but you know that it is. And um, really was a was a major turning point in my own life in thinking about what was important and how I was going to spend the next, you know, God willing, three decades of a of a career. Yeah. So um, definitely a pivotal point in my own life. And we found out later we lost a close family personal friend uh, there, and and also somebody I knew from from church. So definitely, um, you know, it was a very tough very tough day and, and, and following the weeks. It's interesting. Yeah, we, we a lot of us, most everyone I know, almost everyone I know, not, not to a T, but almost everyone I know who lived in Washington or New York knew someone or knew someone who knew someone or was mm-hmm. related to someone. Uh, with me, there were uh, two degrees. Uh, well, there were two people. One I knew directly. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you remember Barbara Olson? Uh, her husband yes. was the Solicitor General. I knew Barbara. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, then, of course, uh, I came to know someone I had mentioned earlier on the show. I got to know a Deborah Burlingame whose brother Chick was one of the pilots on American Airlines 77. I got mm-hmm. to know her, and, of course, I've gotten to know Susan Riscorla. So I've gotten to know, and I did know one. Uh, but uh, it's amazing how, with uh, with that loss that we did know, and it's amazing too that memory you have of thinking you were thinking about taking out a civilian airliner, that military. I was thinking, you know, I was thinking about ends as well, philosophical and heart tugging ends too. Thinking about those guys, the Beamers on Flight ninety three. You know, yep. they knew if they were successful, they were going to take the plane down. The terrorists knew if they were successful, they were going to take the plane down, too. What was the difference in the two thoughts? One was to take down the plane to save as many lives as possible, and one was to take down the plane to end as many lives as possible. Right? I mean, I think think we – there's so much to it. Uh, One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, Pete, uh, one of the many things I wanted to talk to you about, it was an experience I had. Um, I was uh, I was I I was in Washington D.C. when when this took place, right across from the White House, and I was working uh, over at uh, a think tank. It's not there anymore. Empower America. Jack Kemp, oh. Gene, and Bill Bennett, Gene Kirkpatrick, and Bill Bennett. Sure. And uh, Bill, who had spent you know so much of his career in higher education. He pulled me aside out of a meeting the next day. We met. Uh, we we went to the office on September twelfth, and he pulled me. And he pulled me aside, and he said, "We need to kind of change everything here." And I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "Well, we do taxes, foreign policy, and education, but we we need to change everything on that with regard to nine eleven." I, I said, "What do you think?" He says, "Well, you know, I was in college in the sixties, and there were these things." called teach-ins. I knew what teach-ins were. You know what they are. He said, we're going to need to do it in the opposite way. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the teach-ins in the 60s were about how to avoid war. And we're going to need to go to the universities and explain to the students about why we need this war, why we need to go to war. And Mm. I said, hook me up. And we we set up a meeting in Charles Krauthammer's office. It was Bill Barr, (laughs) me, (laughs) Bill Bennett. How fortunate was I to be in this group? Charles Krauthammer, Jim Woolsey, 
Um, and I'm probably leaving out a person or two. I shouldn't uh, be. Uh, Gene, I guess, was there. And we went on college campuses. We did tours of college campuses uh, talking about radical Islam and the threat it posed to us. And the USA Today wrote a column on us, on our group. It was called Americans for Victory Over Terrorism. And they said, this is absurd. This is fear-mongering in the opposite direction. No one thinks that we don't need to go to war. The uh, public view of what happened on 9-11 is strong and will remain stable. And we said, you just watch. You just watch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember reading a piece. Do you know Do you know a Professor Michael Lewis over at Williams? He's an art professor. And he told a story in Commentary Magazine. A, um, a student from Williams who had graduated the year before, so had graduated in 2000, she was killed on 9-11. And, and the students did a, a, a class-wide, a school-wide at Williams College. Is that the most elite college in America? One of them, right? Top five, I would think. She did a, uh, did a, a, a school-wide memorial event for her. 200 students show. Michael, uh, uh, Michael, Michael, uh, uh, the, the professor, Michael, Michael, uh, what did I say? Michael Williams shows. And Michael Lewis shows. The yeah. president shows. And five people from the janitorial staff show. Not a single other professor shows up. Not a single one. I mean, the colleges and the universities went south. Remember Ward Churchill? And I was saying at the time, you know, this is extreme stuff. But you go through the faculty lounges and you just move one click to the right. And that's where most faculty are. Not much more than one click to the right of him on this. It was a blame America first attitude. Still is. Yeah. No, that's right, Seth. Uh, I can't can't think about this conversation without thinking of uh, President Obama's former pastor talking about the chickens yes. coming home to roost. Right, that was right out of the Ward Churchill uh, essay, you bet. Yeah. And uh, again, I think that kind of perspective, as much as, again, I think we, we do remember how close we were, the unity, the yeah. the patriotism that we experienced in, in the months following, but that did not endure. No. And I think... In ways I've, I mean, I talk with students a lot here. You know, to your point, our students don't necessarily know firsthand about 9 11, but they're nonetheless shaped by it. Yep. You know, I gave a presentation earlier today on, on how 9 11 really did shape the world we're in in ways that the pandemic is only building upon. Yeah. And so it's important to understand that the air we breathe uh, was, was put there in part by those events and and that being the case understanding the importance of our unity mm-hmm. um which we're not seeing with this pandemic as actually having national security implications now i'm not saying that this should be demanded but i think we also should count the cost that when we don't experience this unity as a nation mm-hmm. Uh, it does come with consequences. Mm-hmm. Say more and, on that. Um, Say more of what you told your students. This is a fascinating idea, uh, concept to me, thesis to me. Talk to me a little bit more about what you what you said in your speech. Well, so I'm talking about the fact that you know, to your point about what's been taught in academia yeah, right. now, what we're seeing in things like the 1619 Project, uh, they're inherently polarizing. 
and and without really a, a chance for reconnection. And you and I have had a number of conversations yep. about the loneliness yep. levels. And yep. This is all documented. This yep. is social scientific research Isolation. showing yeah, these levels bet. of disconnection. Yeah. But what 9-11 showed, and I believe what we're seeing now with the pandemic, and I'm, I'm just going to say, I hope it's not overly controversial, we're, the media has let us down in, in informing us of the threat from China. Uh-huh. I'm, it's not controversial on this show. Okay. So to me... If we're not, if it's not possible for us to come together, then we are not going to be prepared to respond to threats that are real and comprehensive. And that's not to say, again, that there shouldn't be things that we look back on in our history. Again, we've talked through this many times. I just think what 9-11 showed and now what we're experiencing now, I think, even in some deeper and broader ways, is that there's a cost to be paid if we're not able to flex our patriotic muscles. And there's so much to this. There's a lot There's a lot of strings on this guitar, Pete, because I, I'm thinking of two things immediately when you make that point. One is, yeah, the China thing, there were those that... There were there were weird conspiracy theorists on nine eleven too, who were trying to say, "Well, we did this to ourselves." You could you could get Michael Moore's crap, yeah, and you could get the nuts who said, "Well, this was an Israeli job," or, I mean, yeah. uh, the the stuff was around. It was yeah. mostly ridiculed. I remind that Na- Nancy Pelosi went to the opening of Fahrenheit nine eleven. However, today. The weird echo I have in my mind is Andrew Cuomo, who keeps talking about this as a European virus. And it's just so odd. It's just so very, very odd because it's so very obviously in front of our eyes. So, yes, the China thing is 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 a big part of this and the concern you have about the distractions away from it. I worried about distractions on 9-11-2. You see it today. You hear it from Cuomo. The other weird thing that I can't get my arms around, Pete, is what's taken place in 19 years where we went from a ethic of let's roll to an ethic of let's curl up under a bed and hide. That, to me, too, this there wasn't the, anyway, you take my point. Yeah, and I, I do think that some of that is related to our inability to understand the national security implications of the pandemic. Okay. Right? Imagine, if you will, that we actually did see this pandemic as something that was concocted in a military lab, released intentionally or accidentally, But once that happened, the government that released it did not make it evident or known to other places that that could have... Oh, they deliberately lied. Yeah, you can put it as strongly as you want, right? They lied. lied. And then to see the steps that that country has taken now Uh in sending masks and faulty medical equipment to countries around the world intending to develop their image as being essentially the the alternative to America Mm -hmm. around the world. Yep. And I think if we really took that seriously, Seth, we would look very differently Mm -hmm. 
at what we're facing. And, because um, because it's a national security threat, or at least it has s- severe national security implications, as opposed as opposed to those who are making a domestic partisan point of it as it's Donald Trump's fault. And and to take that even another step further, you know, you may have heard we've we've had a, a, a leaked recording here of our county health official in Los Angeles yeah, County yeah. who recently was recorded as saying the schools are not yeah. going to open until after, after the, the election. election. After the election, right. right. So this is something... I'm glad that the, came out because I, I tell oh. you, I've been saying when people say, when will this end? I said November 4th. <laughs> Either way, whatever the outcome yeah. of the election, November 4th is when we'll stop hearing about it. But again, the politicization yeah. of this pandemic i think is a is a natural result of the increasing politicization of the country yeah. and our inability as i used the phrase before and can't come up with anything better to to flex our patriotic muscles yeah. in times that demand it yeah yeah and we did have it as you point out yes. 19 years ago for about 3 months Yep. I mean, we, we we actually quantified it at one point. Uh, we quantified that Bible sales were through the roof. We quantified that AA meetings and 12-step meetings were standing room only in a movement that says we always have a chair for you. Uh, we, mm. we, we, there, we quantified that divorce attorneys were saying people were pulling back their filings. Um, it, it, it was real. It was real. And uh, and then and then the, the year came and 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 changed. Um, Al Gore gave a speech closer to you than to me up at the Commonwealth Commonwealth Club in San Francisco about mm. a, uh, almost exactly a year after 9-11, uh, 2001. It was September of 2002. And he was talking about the Bush administration engaging in the kinds of wars the Soviet Union engaged in when they were talking about preemption attack. And he said the U.S. should never do what George Bush is talking about it's what the Soviet Union did to Afghanistan in the first place. And I said, there it is. That's yep. where we lost it. Right yep. there. Right there when we compared George Bush to Leonid Brezhnev. Pete, I, I, I think um, as 9-11 became political, basically starting in the year 2002, and the left made it so, the Democrats made it so, happened here too, as you point out, mm-hmm. with the coronavirus, with huge and severe national security implications it's um it's eerie to me because i don't know did you did you see um did you see the uh the uh the the uh showtime was it showtime or it was hbo the hbo series on chernobyl last year i didn't it's worth it's very familiar with it yeah very much worth seeing a lot of people were reminded about the lies the soviet union engaged in and i was relating it to the kinds of lies China was engaging in, and I was thinking about 9-11 because one of the things some of us said after 9-11, and we were wrong, was that this postmodern era of there being no such thing as truth anymore vanished on 9-11. We were wrong about that. We were wrong. We thought good and evil had been so tangible, so evident, so emanitized, if I can, that uh, this this pseudo-sophisticated notion of 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 uh, there being no such thing as truth and good and evil can be matters of uh, subjection 
was gone, and it wasn't, was it? I mean, you and I saw it clearly, but a lot of the country well, didn't. And, and related to that, Seth, I mean, the fact that we weren't really at the end of history either. Right, right, right. right. So there were there were two parts of that, the, the waking up from the fact that there are others who, who want to do America harm, mm-hmm. uh, and at the same time, there was the beginning of the awareness that American hegemony was was under attack. And if you think about it, back in that time, that was all, those were also the heady days when we all believed that engagement, not to belabor this point, but it's certainly relevant from a timing perspective, that engagement with China and bringing them into the world trade organization and engaging them in trade was going to bring all these other great benefits of liberty um, that that we would expect when economic liberation uh, can engender political liberation. So there, there are actually many streams uh, happening there that uh, that originated uh, on on this day 19 years ago. You know, you mentioned the end of history. I'll never get this out of my head. Probably we just keep reminding each other of things. There's so much here. That book, that thesis um, of Francis Fukuyama's, I was going back through it after 9-11. And do you, do you know he only he, – in, in that long book on, on having reached the end of history, he had one mention of the Arab world. And this is what he wrote. Can I tell you? I have it in front yes, of me. Yes, that's have great. One mention. He, quote, it is hard to believe that the Muslim movement in the Arab world will take on any universal significance, close quote. And that was it. Even the preachers of the end of history, you know, got it wrong and just totally discounted the power of, you know, basically Nazi ideology in the hands of radical religion. You know, it's interesting. I don't know what meme may have started it, but I've I've noticed several times on my Twitter feed people trying to name the, the best the best year in their life, you know, and there are people in their 40s and 50s and everyone saying that that late 90s period was just kind of the the golden era. Ho- holiday know. from history, Charles Krauthammer called it. And that right there, Seth, is what it was. Yep. Right? Ho- holiday from history. And, and 9-11 changed that, and now we're seeing it again. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I think I told you at one point, um, one of our recent conversations, we, we saw a doubling of applications here to the policy school during the pandemic, uh, the first stages of the pandemic last spring. And I'm, my hope is that if there is any sort of silver lining here, that there is an awareness that we haven't been on a holiday of from history in these last few years either. What do you what do you attribute that to? People wanting to better themselves or what? Improve their No, well in my line of work, yeah. you know, it's not like with limit with some exceptions no, who are notable, you don't get in the, the policy world for money. Right? Correct. And so for for us when I thousandfold I'm certain... poverty indeed. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what Socrates said, right? <laughs> <laughs> but what I see in the applications are this awareness and I think it's been brought on by the pandemic that this is a multi-layer policy and political crisis. Okay. That is not just international relations. It's also what's going on at the county level. It's what's happening in our states and and certainly at the federal level as well. And this awareness 
that and it's the awareness that I came to on on this day 19 years ago standing in the middle of Central Park looking down at the brown smoke that there's a much bigger world out there that I need to be aware of and not only aware of but engaged in yeah 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 I have you and I know a bunch of people like this Pete Uh, he lives in Southern California do you know he's a he's a comedian by trade but he's now taken to written some great books Evan say it do you know Evan oh yeah sure and he he tells this story too he says 9-11 changed him forever and changed his politics forever too Uh, you know he he listened to that kind of crud that Al Gore was spewing and he realized this can't be my party anymore. America is not at fault here. What Gene Kirkpatrick was warning about in the blame of America first attitude or what the Jeremiah rights were fulminating about later, obviously. But isn't that yeah. ironic, Seth, that we're, we're doing the same thing yes. again? Yes, yes. It's our fault. This pandemic is our fault. It's how, our fault. Oh, yes. And oh, yes. How, ma- how many Facebook how many Facebook postings talking about how America is doing the worst in the world? You know? Oh, You're, right? Right. Our fault, the worst in the world. And what's this Cuomo business about the European virus? <laughs> what is that about? You know, Pete, if you have visitors this weekend who are coming to you from Canada... Toronto, and they stop at a layover in Detroit, you don't say you have friends coming in from Detroit. (laughs) I know. This is the And then to look at what where the tracks came in Europe. Yeah. And they followed pretty closely to the Chinese trade and engagement routes there, too. Pete, you're the best. God bless you. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Lon Chen of the Hoover Institution for townhall.com. President Trump's record on foreign policy over the course of his first term in office boasts some significant accomplishments and noteworthy gains. But there's unfinished business to do. And nowhere is that business more critical than in efforts to redefine America's relationship with the People's Republic of China, tackling the single biggest geopolitical challenge America faces today. In a potential second term, Trump should establish a single overriding goal for his foreign policy, how America can win the strategic competition we are engaged in with the People's Republic of China. More broadly, we need to work with our friends and allies to ensure a free and open Indo-Pacific, the region where the most is at stake for us in the coming decades. But it all starts with the right approach to China. President Trump has the right team assembled to do this. The American people can give him that opportunity. I'm Lan He Chen. The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For those considering careers in politics and policy.